0: alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Today's episode is a challenging conversation, which includes a racial slur in the recounting of an event in which the slur was used. In this interview, my guest and longtime friend, Jabari Whitehead, shares some of his childhood experiences, which included racist treatment and language from his schoolmates. While it is disturbing to hear this slur spoken aloud, Jabari and I both feel it is important to keep the language intact. In Jabari's words, it's ugly, but true. We therefore advise listener discretion, especially if there are children who may be listening. And we are deeply grateful to Jabari for sharing his personal story with us. Our special guest today is Jabari Whitehead. He's an elementary school principal, an adjunct professor at St. Joe's University, go Hawks. He's a father, husband, educator, a seeker of wisdom, He lives every day with the purpose of adding value to the lives of others through human connection and relationships. Jabari has been a personal friend of mine for many years. And what I appreciate most about you, Jabari, is your positivity and encouragement, your morning texts your links to cool podcasts and quotes, and your willingness to do all that deep learning and help us come along the journey with you. This conversation today is a part of our Black Voices series. It's an effort to share some of the stories, realities, and lived experiences of Black professionals. Thank you so much for participating and being here on ROG.
1: Jan, thank you so much for having me here today.
0: I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning more from you, engaging in this topic, and to share your wisdom with our listeners. Like I said, I have the benefit of being a personal friend, so we get to share this more broadly today. So let's begin with you sharing your racial journey as a person of color.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, Shannon, thank you very much again, because every time we have conversations, you know, over the years, it's an opportunity to reflect and grow. So this is this awesome time today. And speaking of my racial history or journey, the first step for me was colorism, the shades of blackness. So growing up right away, the first thing that you are made, made aware of how dark you are, how light you are and your acceptance was based off of that. Some of that comes from the mindset from plantations of that comes from a hierarchy that was created there. Uh, as you know, many of the African-Americans in the North migrated from the South to the North, made the exodus. So some of that mindset still hung on and it created a power structure within the black community. Uh, one of my memorable moments was the time I was actually in high school. And I'll never forget, there was a young lady in class who I happened to be looking in her direction. I wasn't looking at her for any kind of, and she was African-American as well, but she happened to be a lighter. She skin and I was looking just up at the teacher at the board what we're learning and she turns around assumes soon as I was looking at her and her first words out of her mouth was oh no you're too dark for me <laughs> so I said like, whoa so it was just it just even with that and then there's just the it was, uh, I know my mother's often spoke about how children her family were treated differently by the older generation based off how light or dark their complexion was. So colorism played a large part, especially being worthy of love, whether or not if you were too dark, you didn't think you had any physical features that may have been attractive uh, at any point in time to, to someone you may have liked uh, growing up, or whether or not, sometimes it even came down to how you were treated by your relatives, who were supposed to love you. In terms of like, which children were more, were more favorable amongst of uh, the, I'm the of my of well, the three of us myself my two siblings I'm the one of the darker complexion so I actually had it that way seeing how my own siblings were treated differently in a better way in terms of in comparison but again it was a mindset that's passed down and also when you're interacting, in terms of colorism uh, when you're interacting with other with other people according to there's always commentary about how light or how dark your skin is I remember when uh, when when Avery was born and we were at a at a neighbor's house, there was a comment about they couldn't believe how light the child's skin was, even though because of you know how dark I am, how you know, how, you know, obviously Krista and I are in a racial relationship. So uh, I think that was uh, one of those pieces as well. And you see it reflected in movies, magazines, as it what representation. So colorism was the first one. Uh, that I've probably experienced. And then um, the idea of ethnic self-hatred that comes along with that. Growing up, because of the scales of Blackness that we face, there was always this determination of how you were supposed to act, how you were supposed to look, um, how you were supposed to behave according to your complexion or color. So I think that... it. Is it still relevant today? Colorism still relevant today. Uh, from my experience as a school administrator, from my experience as a teacher, you can hear the language even among children, uh, high school kids today, who tease each other about the color of their skin, how dark, how light, um, you know, they are. And you can hear in the you know comedians' jokes. Uh, but it's it's still there. Uh, I, I, it's more acceptable today to, it's, it's more acceptable today to have to be a be darker complexion because you have more representation. I think there's more representation in terms of, you know, the celebrities, more representation in terms of professionals. So we're seeing that more, but f- for some reason, it is still, it still holds strong today. My
0: goodness, that is a heartbreaking, component to racism and the way that people have been trained to think and to think that children have been taught that level of judgment and scrutiny is is just really devastating. So you talked about having negative attributes, self-hatred. You talked about colorism. And I wonder how have those things affected you? I mean, you went to a private school growing up. I know you were one of few African- Americans in that school I mean what what was that like
1: earlier on it it wasn't as bad because you're just a new kid but once you stay start figuring you out uh, you start trying did they, they start the language or they become comfortable around you using their own language um, in terms of using in derogatory terms uh, the n word will come up about another person or about you the the interesting one was when the the uh, a classmate would call another student the N word, but then would turn to you and say, "Well, you're not like them," uh, which was you know, very odd. You know, we're we're the same thing, but that was a belief system because there had certain pictures in their head about what what fits that bill, and so also the idea that you always were wondering how people felt about you all the time. So I describe it as the idea of and I heard it's not original for me, but I heard it described as swimming, like racism and bias is like swimming as a fish swimming in the ocean. Because it's it's constantly around you. So you're not sure if you're friends of the opposite color are really your friends or, or do they really believe in you? Are they talking behind your back? What are they saying when they're away from you? What's going to happen when they become angry? And I think that fortune for me, I did at least at home, have Parents that put a lot of things in perspective and help me understand that, you know, that we are not those things, that we're not the N word or we're not an ignorant person. That, you know, that in many cases it refers back to religion, uh, where my parents and their faith will always say we're we're, uh, beautifully and wonderfully made. So that kind of served as the reminder and helped us at school. But it was still painful, It, it still hurt. And I think the fact is, when I was going through school at the high school level, you know, having adults who were not allies or who didn't stand up for you when a classmate made derogatory remarks or took derogatory actions towards you became a sense of betrayal. And it was it could be a painful experience knowing that the adults are, you're supposed to care for you and trust and you're supposed to trust them. So there was an example of where I, I'll never forget where I was on the on the baseball field on a softball field during a P.E. class uh, in high school. And again, I was one of the one of the only. And I remember that I was up to bat. You know, I just know other way to describe it. When I was up to bat uh, for the softball game, PA, the people in the field were saying "swing nigger, nigger, swing nigger, nigger." So I'm there, and I'm you know just holding it and holding it together. And I and I at that point literally just had enough. And the only thing the teacher said at that time was "knock it off." So I had a whole infield of kids laughing and joining in on, on a chant and only thing the teacher at the time that was knocking off guys and that was it now i'm a principal today so we know the world is way different there's consequences for that i was also once forbidden by an administrator uh, from dating the opposite race i was once called into office because a parent was concerned and uh, you know, the 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 administrator made me aware that I should not be oh. uh, I'm not allowed or would not be allowed to date someone of opposite race or, or this girl in particular because of these particular concerns. So the, the, that was one. And then I also had just the commentary of coaches um, at the in the high school level about my complexion. Uh, things happen, you know, especially at practice. And these were adults. So th- this happened for some time, but I've. I think over time, because I had the background, because I had the family support, it was you know I'm there for my education, I'm there to be successful, and we I didn't come from a background making excuses, <laughs> so, so because we do believe obviously our ancestors had it much much worse than the people who dealt with things much worse, so it was different mission, it a different understanding uh, as far as what is our final or what the bigger purpose was for us in, in those schools.
0: Yes. And for those who are listening, who have children who are in similar situations, as much as we want to believe so much has changed, we know that it has been at a snail's pace in many cases and things have not significantly changed in the ways that we wish they would. What would you recommend a parent says to a child who's experiencing something like that? Unfortunately,
1: in this world, because the society determines who is of what race, right? Who belongs to what categories, the labels that we have. So, my own children, even though they're a mixed race, will be ultimately determined in this society or based on the parents as brown or people of color or black, uh, and, and that's just how it is. And unfortunately, we've already had to have those conversations with our children about how, you know, what do they do, how do they face, how they face these things. Um uh, my son already had some commentary said towards him during a, a practice. Um, and, you know, he handled it well because we talk, we talk about a lot of, you know, what is your responses? How do you – what are things you – what do you say? How do you detract or how do you – uh, defuse the situation or lessen the impact. But we also have to acknowledge that it is hurtful, it is painful. I, I think we really can't tell children that it's to get over it, be strong. Uh, it's uh, one acknowledging that these things will happen sooner or later, um, and we have to be prepared for it and know and give them a sense for who they are, especially with children of color. One of the things that was, was so important as far as for people of color in our country is a loss of identity, and what I mean by that, because of our ancestry, because of the way we came about in this country, and this how this you know how things are structured, very few of us have a, can trace our family tree back accurately to where. I mean now there's African ancestry, there's 23andMe, there's all these other opportunities, but there's so much value in knowing the contributions of your people. You know what? What can you be proud of? Uh, what? What can you? What? What can you attach to your culture? Uh, what can you know about yourself? Something as simple as you know, in history class, the Italian. You know, you know, think about Rome. You can think about the Rome, the Colosseum, the Roman Empire, the romanticized, the romanticization of all these different groups. If you're German or European. Or even if you're, one of the benefits of students who are, who immigrate to our country now, uh, say for example, if a child's from India or African descent, they, they came from those countries directly, so they, they're able to trace back you know, to their roots immediately. And they have a strong sense of culture and a strong sense of community, and it doesn't have to be manufactured or built. They're not chasing down a Juneteenth or a Kwanzaa. They they have identity that comes along with them. So it's, so for children, helping them know their history, helping them out of their history. I think it's important for me, with our children, uh, there's a book called The Color of Water. And that one, I forget, I think McBride is the author but in that book I we read that before our children was, were born and it was so important that our children even though they're brown in appearance that they were able to be proud of both sides of who they are their, their whole human self because you know if we if we look beyond labels inherently we're human beings you know we're mammals we're we belong to a broader universe we belong to you know a greater power than what's before us so having children see that and engulfing them and immersing them in great spirit and teaching our children about collective humanity serves a greater purpose so then they see where they belong and they grow a greater love for themselves
0: when we come back jabari shares about cultural taxation and some examples of what black people have to think about like where to put your wallet Introducing the brand new QuadPod podcast network. At QuadPod, we have a variety of podcasts that are as unique as you. When you visit quadpod.com, you'll see our shows listed by category as well as average episode length. Find a new podcast at qodpod.com. The QuadPod podcast network. That's qodpod.com. And we're back with more from the one and only Dr. Jabari Whitehead.
1: Well, Shanna, I was literally writing down a list of items, right, that people do not think about at all. And I brought up the idea of the wallet. Every time I get into a car or drive somewhere, my distinction or determination or designation of where I'm placing my wallet, I think about that. Do I need to have it on the dashboard? Or- where, where should I have this thing located at so I'm not making any uh, false action? And I know, look, the, we're still talking about particular individuals who are serving and who, who are meant to protect and serve who no longer meet that calling. Those individuals don't belong or deserve to have that calling. But at the same time, we have a bunch of great men, women and, and, and individuals who are serving. So but having this conversation, really around, you know, I have to figure out where I'm keeping my wallet at so I don't have any sudden action because it's based on someone's fear of what could possibly happen. Uh, so that is something as small as that. Uh, the whole idea of your appearance and facial expression and body language, being aware of someone being scared of you or not, like if I'm walking down a sidewalk Having to be aware of, I don't want to make somebody be fearful of me, or like say for example, getting into an elevator. If I'm at an elevator at a hospital, elevator at a at a building, um, there's a good chance, depending on who the person is, I got to gauge whether or not am I going to get on this elevator with this person, because I don't want this person to be scared. You have to make yourself less threatening. And often, uh, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote the poem, uh, We Wear a Mask. And he, he talks about the mask that you're wearing and so people not see the you know, what you can be feeling inside, and you have a lot of displaced uh, emotions or or frustration that you can't let out. Uh, Dave Chappelle has a skit called <laughs> "Where uh, Keeping It Real Goes Wrong," and you 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 always try to figure out what people are going to be weary of or how they're going to see for me one of the terms that used to come out over my professional career is intimidation you know what were you intimidated by and then some people are willing to say but look at you look at you like okay tell me more look at me how <laughs> What well, you know what are you intimidated by is it and some people will say well it's by your you know your professional your wisdom you 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 speak with, with such conviction so, but that usually only comes about when I find out the person, underlying factors that seem more insecure about who they are. So least, again, that comes from the, the cultural literacy in, in a sense. But at the same time, it is tough when someone is telling you that you're you know imposing. And I know I'm physically I know who I am, I know what I look like, but at the same time you, you wonder what people are going to believe. And I had an incident in Bethany Beach, uh, where a woman and her mother wasn't lying. I don't know if I told you the story before, but the woman and her mother wasn't lying, and they were going to pay for items. And I'm going. I'm the next person lying next to them. And for some reason, the 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 woman told her mother, who was an older lady, to she whispered to her to watch her stuff, watch her money. Now, I I I I'm enraged by that. She was a bad whisperer to begin with. And I know other people in the store hurt her, but nobody responded. There was no allies in that moment. But my choice at that time, I, I can't take the choice of talking to these, these ladies and them being filled with fear and then going outside seeking down a police officer. And then I'm, you know, creating a situation that I didn't create, but that's how I feel and see it because I had to make a choice or a decision how I could respond. I've talked to our students in our school, our fifth grade classes this year about stereotypes and the impact that it has and some of the stories so I could get a, a firsthand encounter account of uh, you know the impact of it. And children, these are fifth graders and they're asking, so but why did you say something you know or and they explained that they would have spoken up. Um, if they were there or they being me would have said something because it was just wrong. And I had to explain the choices that I had. And also I had to explain the idea that once that happened, that whole sense of not feeling like you belong destroyed a a vacation time. So I had to return to my family with pieces torn away from me. I had to, to, you know, the fabric, that string on, on your fabric or your shirt just started to be pulled and, Pull and pull, and you lose that, and then now you start becoming aware of. Well, there's not many of me you, you, down here. You, you get a sense of, of of not belonging, and then you have to kind of rework your way. Remember, that was that person, that instant. But it's but because it happens so often, it's repetitive, like little paper cuts that that keep coming back.
0: I'm so sorry that that happened to you, and that continues to happen. And the the irony is the. Level of person that you are—the not just the tangible success in your career and in your life and everything, but the the wholehearted way that you live your life—that you know you're so committed to continual growth and development.
1: Well, last time that, I think that too something that that people don't consider too is that for a person of color. When you're seeking out opportunities a better life for your family, you will realize the disparities that are within the communities that you may have come from, the urban population, or area it's come from. Leaving the community is like kind of leaving your reflection, leaving yourself, you know, because you no longer get a chance to see yourself. You have to go to other places to, to have, quote unquote, a better life for your family, for your children, you're forced to make that choice. And it it, it runs a, gam- a, a gamut of emotions you just kind of run through and, and you wonder what, what the psychological effect for you and your children for the, the long term, but you do see the, the bigger purpose. And uh, I think that's something that for us, for especially for our children, it's something that we're constantly c- considering.
0: Yes. Absolutely. And I think that's that's an important thing for all of us to hear is how can we be a part of that shift? How can we create environments where people are welcomed and treated equally and, you know, everything that you're talking about. So why are you so optimistic knowing what you know and seeing what you see? I mean, you continue to do the work. What keeps you going and what keeps you so
1: positive, Jabari? We look for good in people. If you tallied up the Positive interactions between humans every day. You're going to overwhelmingly find the good and see the good in people. If you look at everyone like their own personal story, that everyone is a story, everyone is worthy of being seen, valued, and heard, then you know that you're heading in the right direction. And you know, is it can it be tiring? Can you feel like there's sense of cultural taxation going on? Can you be fatigued by it? Yeah, but there was no promise that this life was going to be easy. Um, and there's no guarantee. So it goes back to the obstacle being the way, and that we have to be able to move forward because of our collective humanity, because we're knowing there's a, a greater purpose, and we're all, we, we can't escape the fact that we're in this mutually in, in intertwined entanglement as human beings.
0: Yes, yes. So that reminds me of two of your favorite quotes that you've shared with me recently. One of them is Marcus Aurelius when you were just speaking about the Stoics and you, you've turned me on to the Daily Stoic. And that quote is, the mind adapts and converts to its own purposes the obstacle to our acting. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, I love that. It, what stands in the way becomes the way. The obstacle is the way. There's no hiding from what's going on. Uh, you have a choice. You can walk out your door every day and see your purpose and interact and engage. And one thing that's endearing is when someone is willing to admit their ignorance and have the tough conversations. And also understand you have to meet people where they're at. So do you, you're not going to make or it's not like a fool's errand is to change perception. So it's not about changing someone's perception. It's about giving them the example and have them make their own determination over time. But you can't do that because you can't have you have to have the courageous conversation. So at work, uh, when I have whether it's a teacher or, or an instructional aide or a parent who had a who's struggling or have a who present a specific level of ignorance, I have opportunity to help shift that or provide evidence to them or sense urgency for them. That they now, they can't say they have didn't have that before. They can't say that they didn't have opportunity to gain that wisdom or knowledge. And then talk about being uncomfortable. It was right after the George Floyd tragedy that I was invited. And there's no other way to put it, would be considered at that time, the belly of the beast, being invited to a roll call with a room full of police officers. And knowing my history and being you know, still having my own discomfort, especially after seeing someone who looked like me being rolled up onto um, a stretcher and a lifeless body. But going into the belly of the beast and being able to talk, have conversations, and on multiple occasions, you have to be. Who else is going to do it? So again, that that is why um, you know the obstacle is the way. We have we have to continue to work.
0: I honor you for that. Courage and your willingness to share your truth, your story. So, thank you for just being who you are in the world. You are a
1: bright light. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I truly enjoyed it, and you know, I, I really hope that oh, whoever said today will you know, resonate and, and can make a difference. So, thank you very much, Anna.
0: Our OG takeaway tip: How to apply what we've learned to our own work and life. Jabari is unique and inspiring, not because he's black, but because he does the work and he's the most authentic version of himself, a challenge all of us confront daily. The reason I mention what's unique and not about Jabari is that sometimes people have one friend in a group that's unlike themselves. And in those cases, sometimes people say innocently yet hurtfully, you're not like the other ones. You're fill in the blank with something positive. And what you're saying to that person is one, when I first met you, I judged you as being these negative things. And two, everyone else who looks like you are those negative things. Those sentiments are microaggressions and are all too common. It hurts at the core. Jabari is unlike any other because he's an original, just like you. Jabari taught us so many things. Let's double back on colorism, racism, intolerable behavior, pride, and cultural taxation. Colorism is acceptance based on how dark or how light you are. Colorism determines how worthy some people are of love. It can lead to self-hatred. Think about that. People are being judged by the color of their skin and the shade of the color. And it starts at home, each and every one of our homes. In a Time article titled, The Difference Between Racism and Colorism said... That it is not to say that the solution to solving our color problem as a country lies in the home, but that is precisely where the conversation should begin. From day one, parents of every color should begin to celebrate color differences in the human spectrum, instead of praising one over the other, or even worse, pretending we're all the same. Then we could have a more public-facing, cross-cultural dialogue about the more global problem of colorism and plot its necessary demise. Yes, indeed. Jabari reminds us that racism and race is a human construct. We're mammals, part of a species. But somewhere along the line, color became a differentiating factor that was used against people. Since humans created racism and division, humans can create a new paradigm. Want to be a generous leader? Believe this. The only race that people belong to is the human race. Of the many examples of unjust behavior shared by Jabari, the ball game pains me the most. Where do you think those kids learned that behavior? And how about the teacher, the so-called adult in the situation? Let's learn from this story. If any of us ever witness something even close to this, we must take a stand, make it a teaching moment, implement consequences, ensure a sincere apology. Think about the deep hurt and lasting pain caused by being singled out and teased for being the way you were made. A key point Jabari made, be proud of who you are and where you come from. Be proud of who you are, you listening to this message. Be proud. You're the only one of you there is. Jabari said, there's no hiding from what's going on. You have a choice. You could walk out your door every day and see your purpose and interact and engage. It's meaningful, he said, when we admit our ignorance have the tough conversations, and meet people where they are. The obstacle is the way. The obstacle is the way. Until next week, stay generous, everyone. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give.
1: We grow when we give. We grow when we give.